Hello, welcome to TransUnion's podcast. I'm James Robinson. I am the Managing Director of the Consumer Interactive Division at TransUnion. We help support information for good. So we help consumers connect with their financial health and financial education. Today, we're going to be talking around Generation Zs, millennials, and their relationship with financial health and well-being. I'm here today with Ellie Austin-Williams. Um, Ellie, would you like to introduce yourself? Hi, thank you for having me. My name's Ellie. I'm the founder of This Girl Talks Money, which is a financial education platform which aims to open up the conversations all about money, financial well-being, and empowering both Gen Z and millennials with their financial decisions. Brilliant. Can you just talk to me about your journey around money from a personal perspective? What's your journey been? Yeah, absolutely. So I'm definitely not one of those people that started off being, you know, really on top of my finances and being really into money from an early age. I started my working life out in corporate law. And I just remember that feeling when I started work and I got my paycheck for the first time and had no idea really what to do with it and thought, okay, well, this is going to be happening every month, hopefully for a long time. But no one's <laughs> ever told me what to do with my money, how to manage it or make better decisions. And I was in a position where I wanted to have a a good time. I wanted to enjoy being in my 20s, but I also wanted to make sensible financial decisions. And there just really wasn't anything out there that spoke to me. So I started doing some research, started reading, learning, and ultimately just talking about the topic online. And that kind of opened up a can of worms, which uh, has led me here today. So do you think there's a bit of a taboo around money? Do we talk about it enough? Did you, would you kind of did have any education on that? Would that have helped? What's your, what's your thoughts? A hundred percent. I definitely agree with you. I think there is definitely a, a taboo, a stigma around the topic of money. And I think when people are asked about it kind of initially, they often think, oh no, you know, I'm quite happy talking about it. But when you dig a bit deeper, there really is a, a bit of a reluctance. And I think a lot of it comes back to to those messages that often we will have heard in passing when we were younger, you know, like, oh, it's a bit rude to ask someone how much they earn or, um, you know, you shouldn't shouldn't ask about money. And I think there really does need to be a lot more done. And I'm always reluctant to say, you know, put this on on the plate of teachers because teachers have got so much to do. Um, But I think it's a combination of things. I think it's teachers, it's financial services companies, it's families, it's friends. I think ultimately, if we all actually start to open up a bit more about the, the topic and start being a bit more comfortable discussing money, we can actually really learn from all sorts of different places. So in terms of different generations, I'm a, a millennial at the top end, let's be honest, on the yeah. millennial scale. I think different generations have got different attitudes to how they view money, how they will utilise it. I'm the same as you, to be honest. When I got my first paycheck for my proper job, which is obviously not a job in a, behind a bar, etc., I was kind of um, in a position where I just went out and spent it um, because at the, at the time I lived at home. But what do you think the viewpoint for Gen Zs is now? Obviously, those kind of um, people who are either in higher education or kind of in their uh, early to mid late twenties. What, what do you think their views on financial education and kind of information and money right now? Yeah, I mean, they're a really interesting generation. Um, I'm kind of a, a younger millennial, I'd say. So I, I kind of look <laughs> a little bit at this uh, this generation who are kind of five plus years younger than me, and they've really had an interesting and challenging time in terms of the economy. Um, They are basically going into adulthood in an economy which is very difficult. Um, And a lot of them have, similarly to to millennials, had parents or grandparents who really were growing up and 
and going through adulthood in a completely different economy. And the financial situation was so different. So, I mean, one of the stats that is is mad to me is that nearly 50% of Gen Z are spending their entire monthly income on living costs. And two in five have taken on additional work to make ends meet, which is just, it's a huge amount of people that are really on the edge financially. And this is at the start of their careers, the start of adulthood. If you're going into adulthood and managing your money at that point, if you have not got a grasp of how to make sensible, informed financial decisions, you're kind of really up against it, I think, which I think a lot of maybe older generations don't really understand. There's so much discussion and conversation around, you know, oh, is it that younger people spend all their money on other things, that they're a bit more frivolous? And the the data is there to show that is not the case. Um, Yes, there may be different things that money is spent on, but on on a broad perspective, when you zoom out, then the economy just is not as kind or as generous as it was um, kind of 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago. Now, we look at them, you know, the house prices, rental prices right now, especially, let's be honest, in London, to be kind of uh, somebody coming into the market, taking your first paycheck, I'm pretty sure that maybe, let's say, 50% of the, the paycheck would have gone on living costs. Probably in London, it's probably more than that. It's probably yeah. up, to, up to the 80%, and the rest of the 20 check goes on a glass of wine for, for one night out. So, um, that's, that's, Absolutely. That's it's crazy, isn't it? It is. In terms of the attitudes to credit, what, what do you think Gen Z think about credit? Do they understand what credit is and how it works? I think yes and no. I think there is an awareness of it for sure. But I actually think there's a really conflicting view of it. You know, one of the the statistics that has been done from your research is that the majority of Gen Z believe it is important to have access to credit. But also, when I speak to a lot of this generation, then there's a lot of a, a sense of, I guess, confusion or maybe just a lack of trust in in credit and the lack of understanding really of how important it is and why you need it. And I think that's definitely something that there's a keen appetite to to address and to change. I think there's a an appetite amongst this generation to learn. And it's just about how, how we can help them to learn. Who do you think's responsibility is it then to try and educate you mentioned earlier teachers financial institutions how can different people help everybody be educated on the topic yeah i mean i i'm a big believer that actually kind of getting out there like you say and getting in front of the customer is a great way to do that because you know there's there's so much information out there at the moment and like you say it's difficult sometimes to know who to trust and you know social media is undoubtedly a huge, huge influence on this generation. And I think it can't really be ignored. Um, So tapping into that, reaching them where they already are in a way that is relatable, that is not patronising, that is digestible, is going to be really important. And, you know, I think parents have a place in, in the role of education, as do schools, but I actually think a lot of the time, you know, we can't expect the right messages to come from people who maybe don't actually fully understand topics like this themselves. Because I speak to a lot of people who, for example, have been told by their their parents or their families, you know, oh, avoid credit. You know, it's, you know, don't ever get a credit card. And actually that can harm them long term financially. Yeah. And they don't understand the pros and how to manage credit responsibly. And I'm always really keen to give people like that full picture. And I think people like to you, you know, you're in a position where you have all that information and you can give people credible, reliable information to go away and make their own decisions about. But it's just about how you can reach those consumers at the right point and and meet them where they are along their journey of understanding credit. 
Absolutely. I mean, that, that's, that's our mission. As, as I mentioned earlier, we, we try to our partners to help educate um, every single consumer across the spectrum, give them tools, support, and give them information. The, the better we can kind of provide more education, the, it's going to be uh, good for everybody. Yeah, absolutely. I think you're right. These are digital natives. These are people who have grown up with apps at their fingertips. What kind of tactics, what kind of advice, if you were kind of in the position of a financial institution, of a bank, etc., what would you give to them? Almost assuming that your consumer has no knowledge of credit and creating really simple, digestible videos, clips, information that they can digest in the way that they digest funny content or um you know lifestyle content online and there are some some companies out there that are doing it really well already and they have really built up a, a presence across the board and there are some in financial services i think that are kind of flying the flag um it's not an easy task because ultimately you are a financial services company but I think speaking to your consumer where they are and on the platform that they are comfortable on and in a language that they understand and, you know, bringing in younger faces that you can relate to a bit more to deliver that information rather than making it feel as though, you know, the old school image of financial services where you've got a man in a suit in an office in (laughs) Canary Wharf, um, like... (laughs) trying to just give people that impression that it isn't like that because it isn't. And then anyone that works in, in financial services does know that there's a lot more to it than that. But I do think there's still a bit of a uh, that old school association with it. I think increasingly, Gen Z are looking at having multiple different providers for different purposes. I think they're a savvy generation. And more and more, I'm seeing people becoming aware of like the the benefits of looking around and shopping around. And I'm a big believer in that when it comes to who you bank with. I think, you know, if your bank is not doing anything for you, then there's no reason to stay loyal to them. Um, and I do think that that is a trend that is continuing with younger generations. There is more, I guess, awareness of of making sure that actually the services that you are a customer with are serving you, um, that you're not just there and going through the motions. But I do think it's going to be a big battleground. Um, I think a lot of the the high street banks and more traditional banks are starting to try and innovate to keep up with the yeah. digital banks and and the neo banks. And I don't think any of them are there yet. Um I think there's a long way to to go. And I understand as well that I think, you know, when you're a legacy brand and bank, you've got a lot more baggage in a way. You can't just pivot and and innovate as quickly. You've also got a lot of older customers that you've got to service as well. Um, but I think I think this younger generation are more aware of making sure that banks are working for them as well rather than yeah. being passive. I think that's interesting. I think so. You're talking about experience there, aren't we? We're talking about kind of the right experience for the right consumer. But for Gen Zs, then, what types of customer journeys and experiences do you think will relate to them? I think a lot of it is about ease, speed, ease, confidence in terms of security. Um, but basically, it needs to be simple. I think, you know, again, the fact that financial services is a very regulated industry, that it's it's not as straightforward as a lot of other apps, to them, I'm not sure matters. I think they still expect the 
the process, the journey as a customer to be as simple. So if it's clunky, if there's loads of ID checks that are slowing down the onboarding, if there's a lot of admin that you have to do, that's not going to work. It needs to be digestible. It needs to be quick and it needs to be intuitive, I think. So I want to talk about kind of gender. Do you, do you think that males and females kind of see financial well-being in the same light? Are there any differences and similarities? Is that, is that changing over time? What's your view? I think there is a difference. Um, I think that the the difference is potentially in terms of how how it's approached in terms of looking after your financial well-being. So from a lot of the work that I do, I speak to both a lot of men and women, and there's a lot less confidence amongst women, I think, in terms of financial decisions. And the there's been some studies that have kind of looked into this and the, the reality is that actually when it comes to making decisions, then there is no difference in terms of how good the decision making is. But I think, and I think this goes back to historical kind of experiences again, but I think women tend to feel a little bit less confident in their ability to make good financial decisions. And it doesn't surprise me in the sense that, you know, although nowadays it seems totally normal that we can do all of the same things. 50, 60 years ago, women did not have the same access to financial institutions. Women did not run the household finances in the same way. So we're still very much, I think, in the the early years of, of women having the option to be financially equal and independent, even though I think sometimes we forget that the time scale is, is, is as short as it is. Absolutely. So, so it's about empowerment as well then, isn't it? So yeah. it's, it's all around empowerment. It's all around tools. So make sure that everyone's got the same tools, the same access to information, and then hopefully everyone can make informed decisions and, and then it breeds confidence. I think you're right. I think t- for me, it comes from ages and um, of old school mentality around um, who goes to work and who doesn't go to work and yeah. who did what finances. So I think those barriers are slowly and hopefully it's faster starting to break down. But the the quicker that happens, the better. Having kids that are growing up in this world, um, it's very very important for me to teach them in terms of our equality and kind of financial well being. I think I think that's starting to change though. I think I think the workforce is starting to change with that. The 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 fact that women are more prominent in the workforce, that are more um, prominent kind of in the society, is, yeah, is changing how everyone views this, which is great. Absolutely. And I think, I think as well, you know, employers are really starting to pay attention as well. We've had a a rocky few years, um, economically and financially for a lot of people. And I think that, you know, where we were maybe 10 years ago with mental health in, in society, in terms of conversations and openness about it, we are maybe at that kind of point now with money. So, I I feel like there is a lot of hope and optimism that the conversation is opening up, that people are starting to pay attention to financial well-being and that that in kind of five, 10 years, we'll be able to say, oh my gosh, okay, we've really come a long way in talking about it. And in terms of, of, yeah, addressing different people's needs and holding space for people, men and women to to ask those questions and to, to be able to feel more empowered in their financial knowledge. Talking about mental health, I think there's probably a lot of um, mental health problems that are caused by finances. Yeah. And I, th- and I think <laughs> we don't talk about it enough, as, as you mentioned earlier, in terms of money and general day-to-day. I think it's it's a silent um, cause of, of mental health issues. So 
my my personal viewpoint is if we can educate more people, then hopefully that can have a, a positive impact on people's mental health as well. The last the last couple of years of pandemic, let's be honest, have been challenging. I think um, as a as a Gen Z coming to this world, there's no no more challenging time when mm. everything's cost so much and there's, there's less less choice on the market. Let's be honest in terms of financial products and services, so that can have a massive massive implication on mental health. Yeah. So, it's, it's, we've got to do something about that. So um, again, yeah. it, it goes back to that core, core value of more information, better education, better services, and better uh, better kind of journey for consumers. Absolutely, and I think you know you said it there, but this this generation are really not having an easy time, and I think that that mental health and money link is so kind of well well proven in a way, um, and in a way, I feel that sometimes we as a society maybe are looking at the the mental health issues that people are experiencing and trying to to solve those in isolation when actually if if money is a major cause which for a lot of people it is maybe we need to be looking at that as well and trying to get to the root of what is causing those those mental health struggles Definitely, absolutely, and in terms of kind of solving that problem, then. So um, we mentioned earlier around um, the kind of the brands and the different kind of uh, responsibilities. But does it does it come back down to trust? What does trust mean in this kind of whole um, ecosystem that we that we live in right now around financial health? Um, I think that trust is something that obviously you have inherently with certain people, but I also think you know, with a brand, you can really build that trust. And I think that there's a huge opportunity for brands to do that, to to really get those customers to really trust that they are on their side and that they are looking out for them. They've got their best intentions. Um, and I think, you know, it's difficult in financial services for a lot of companies. I think there is a lack of trust because, you know, the news headlines, banks are always in the news for the wrong reasons. Um, and I think a lot of people feel like they are almost adversaries um their their financial service providers they they don't have to be and i think that that is on the financial service providers to to really look at what their customers need to be able to trust them and how they can start to bridge that gap because i've definitely been there and i've experienced that where you don't feel like a you can really trust a, a provider you kind of think oh okay they're there because they're a business and they want to make money out of my money but I've also experienced, you know, having banks where I do feel like actually they are trying to help me out here and they're trying to get me into a better position. So there is a lot that I think um, financial services companies can do to increase that trust. But there's so many examples of, of you know, customers being misled. And the thing that comes to mind for me, and this is really relevant to this generation, is, is greenwashing. You know, we've seen multiple examples of banks being fined and like slapped on the wrist for claiming to be caring about the environment and claiming to be sustainable and actually behind the scenes they're the opposite and for for generations like gen z for millennials things like that kind of transparency that sustainability really actually you know practicing what you preach are important and there's a quick way to to lose trust and that is by lying about it yeah absolutely so so the message there then is make sure you deliver services deliver information that's that's honest make sure that whatever service you provide out there have no self-interest that's going to be the, the, the takeaway 
I think so. And also long term as well. A lot of the time, you know, it is more valuable. Actually, if you do put in that work and build that trust early on, then they are more likely to stick with you for the long term and probably become much more valuable. Yeah, absolutely. Especially especially when we talk about all the different financial needs of the credit industry. So you can't, generally speaking these days, go on holiday. I mean, holidays are uh, astronomically priced these days. So yeah. having access to credit card um, you need, having access to car finance for, for the car that you want to drive, um, it, it's all essential. So in making sure that, that brands can build that trust and then they will get a good loyal customer they can provide services to is, is essential going forward. Yeah, absolutely. Brilliant. So one of the questions that I had on, on my topic list to talk to you about today was open banking. What do you what do you think Gen Zs and millennials think about open banking as a as a topic and as a as a medium? Do they understand it? Do they actually understand what open banking means or do they see the products of it? Yeah, I mean, I'm not convinced that they do fully understand what it means. I think it's more actually about the the outcome. Like you say, I think that a lot of these generations they they see the result and they see the end product of having open banking which they really appreciate but i think there is also a question mark about the security and the safety of open banking and when you understand it you you do have more confidence in it but i think sometimes from from the outside perspective when you're seeing all of your banks being connected up to to an app and all of the data there then there can be a bit of a worry as to What's going on? Is this actually safe? Yeah, absolutely. There are some great examples out there of, of apps and, and services that are, again, making information simple, aren't there? But it's 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 what's in it for the entity, what's in it for the consumer. How does that um, value exchange work to make sure that there's a there's a fair value exchange? If I were to connect my bank account provide all of that data, which is very rich and very personal around my spending habits, what do I get in return? How does yeah. that value me? How do, how do I ensure that that you're not going to kind of go off and do something that I don't want to do with that? I think I think that's, that's, a, that's a key kind of uh, topic in debate that every, um, every company that uses open banking has got to have. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, there's there are ways to really make sure that the consumer does understand it. And, and I think really digging into the fact that you know, there are so many things that we maybe take for granted now that are a result of open banking and some of those insights that we can get into our own spending behaviours, like all of those apps that provide that through open banking are really valuable. But I also think, you know, educating more on what the the long-term benefits can be and, you know, using credit as an example, those insights that open banking can provide to enable somebody's credit file to to be enriched and to be built upon if you've got a thin yeah. file those types of benefits to open banking i think maybe aren't as well publicized and understood by gen z and millennials as they could be absolutely um, and that kind of leads me on to affordability so um one, one of the areas i think that um is is up and coming and is trending People understand now, I think we're getting getting there in the UK market around credit information, credit scoring and, and what that means. But I still think we've got a gap around affordability. So do you think that Gen Zs actually understand affordability as a concept? They understand that actually when you go for a card or a loan or a mortgage, your affordability is checked. And that's a massive determinant. So you can have a fantastic credit score, but if your affordability is poor, you're not going to get the card or the loan or the mortgage. Yeah, I, I agree. I think there's maybe been so much focus on building the knowledge and awareness of credit scores and how important they are that affordability has kind of gone under the radar. 
And it's something that I get asked about a huge amount, especially in terms of property, um, because I think that maybe there is a lack of understanding around it. And I think part of that is probably because it is so personalized. Um, And again, it's back to that point that, you know, there is no one size fits all for affordability. You can't just say, you know, if you tick this, this, this and this, then you have good affordability. Um, It's so unique to each situation that somebody is going through. So how much they're applying for in terms of credit, the value of the car that they're trying to, to get finance for, the property price, their deposit amount, all of these different things that are moving around. But then also layered on top of that, their spending habits. And I think there's definitely a bit of a I guess, a disconnect or a lack of understanding that your spending habits, your expenses on a monthly basis are impacting that affordability and that every real line on your statement does actually shift the needle a little bit. It does. I think I think that's part of the thing. If we could simplify that. So if we could kind of say, well, this is this is your headroom. So this is how much you've got left at the end of the month to, that you spend. And this is your kind of discretionary spend. This is what you could do. There could there could be doors open there around education for consumers um, on that topic. So it's something, it's something that's close to my heart anyway. It's something that I think we as a society and as, as a company to do, to do more on. So um, it's, um, it's, it's a definite battleground for that way. Yeah, totally. And I think, you know, it's, it's a tricky one sometimes because you don't want everybody to be so worried about affordability that they don't spend any money at all. But it's almost that, just that awareness that, yes. you know, if you don't need to spend X amount per month on something that you're just doing because of the sake of it, um, you don't, or you don't realise that you're just signed up to you know 10 subscriptions that are going out that that is actually having an impact on your bigger picture financially um it it kind of comes back again to that general point that i think a lot of financial well-being conversations go to which is there's just not a full understanding of what is always going in and out of our bank accounts and what is going on on a day-to-day basis i think it's really easy to to just kind of put it to one side. And actually that knowledge is really powerful of those incomings and expenses. Completely. I, I think there's lots of situations where if people were better educated, they make different decisions. So there's, there's lots of situations, lots of pressures, lots of things, even going out for a meal, for example, with friends. Yeah. Depending, depending on the restaurant you go to, depending on what, what kind of meal you want to have, there's always that kind of essentially awkward part at the end of the end of the night where the bill split. Yeah. And People don't know if they can afford it or don't afford it. So if they've got the information, they can make an informed choice. They can have a conversation before they go. So there's simple situations like that. But I've talked about holidays. Um, a lot of Generation Zs will be coming into that um, wedding season, those wedding years where mm. you get invited to so many weddings and uh, hen and stag do's. And they're expensive. They're fantastic experiences, but they're expensive. So knowing yeah. your baseline is important, I think, for that. Absolutely. Knowing how much you can spend and also having an idea as well of, you know, how much you can set aside each month so that you can have a pot to be able to spend on those things and you don't have to, you know, overstretch yourself. It's it's all comes back to that point about that knowledge, really. Yeah, absolutely. And there's some some great examples of apps out there that I've seen I actually participate myself in, which automatically look at saving saving that money, that kind of rainy day fund or that uh, whatever whatever funds you want it to be yeah. for. So I, I think there's some, some great things in the marketplace. But again, it comes down to baselining. How do you, where am I today? What can I save? What can I spend? 
and then getting open and honest around different kind of uh, groups of people you can talk to around that. Being open around finances is difficult, but mm. what, what's your view on this, Ellie? Yeah, this is a topic I could talk about for years. Um, it's one of my favorite topics because I just think it's so important. And the stats are there, you know, the data shows that one of the biggest reasons for relationship breakdown is money. And it's not actually about the numbers. Normally, it's the lack of communication around finances. And again, I think it really comes back to a generational shift. And you know, we're we're millennials, we're in a time where we've really gone through quite a lot of change. Gen Z are going through even more in some respects, but they have a lot of opportunity and they have a lot more equality than their parents or grandparents in terms of who is earning money, who is going to work. Um, of course, there are some huge challenges um, that, that still need to be tackled, such as, you know, division of labor, childcare, all of those things. But there's really no reason from my perspective why People should not be talking openly about money in relationships other than it's awkward. The biggest reason that people don't do it is because it's awkward or because they've just never been, I guess, modeled or shown a way to do it that is constructive and helpful and healthy. But I I always encourage people as early on as possible not to jump in at the deep end and be like, okay, guys, you know, first date, how how much do you earn? Um, it's not, <laughs> I don't think that's realistic, but it's just starting to have those conversations and just to build that trust and confidence on the topic of money so that when things do get more serious, you're in a position to say, okay, let's talk about how we're going to manage the bills or how we're going to even pay for different dates or you know, how can we do it in a way that feels fair to both of us? And are we on the same page financially? Do we have the same goals? Because I just don't know how, if you don't have those conversations, you can actually expect long term to not run into conflict around money. Yeah, absolutely. I think I think there's, there's lots of life stages you go through. Um, for my own experience, I've I've got two two kids, and you think about kind of uh, I had the, my boys when we, I was 29, and you think about the the times in terms of paternity leave, um, maternity leave, etc. Back back well, eight ten years ago, there was not really a concept of paternity leave for males, kind of no. doing job sharing. Now there's some great examples out there. Of, of people sharing maternity paternity leave and kind of better pay and better circumstances. And I, and I think that's got to change. That's got to con- continue to change. You've got to see kind of that precedent kind of grow to, to make sure that kind of people can talk and be open around financial situations and circumstances. So it's, it's great to see kind of employees responding to the challenge as well. Absolutely. I think in in this particular space, when it comes to parental leave, employers really do have like the bulk of the influence because here in the UK, it is the employers that set the policy. And again, I know and acknowledge that there are challenges to it, but the benefits of putting in place a policy and also leading from the top. So actually, people that are senior in the companies using those policies, taking like taking paternity leave so that their reports can see that it's a good thing to do and that it's okay. Um, it's so important for for this to shift. And I think as well, I've I've looked into some studies where it shows that, you know, from not only a financial perspective, but a relationship perspective, sharing the the childcare early on between both the mother and father really can have a huge positive benefit on that relationship at home. Um, and it takes a bit of the the pressure, I think, off 
off the mother potentially if the father yeah. can be at home a bit more and and is in a financial position thanks to their employer to to be able to do that so i'm really hoping that um like you say you know there are some companies that are really leading the way and i hope that we're just going to see more seeing the benefits and and yeah jumping on board yeah i think it, i think it opens up conversations isn't it so to to, to have a shared um parental leave You've got to have that open and honest conversation around finances. Well, who's paying for what? Who's yeah. who's doing what? Because there's obviously there's there's a reduction in, in pay that's going to be from one one side to the other. So you've got to kind of work out those financial um, uh, kind of uh, the, the attitudes in terms of and, and commitments, and make sure that's a that, that's a topic. So again, going back to where, where we started with all this, it's the tools. It's Absolutely. having the tools to understand that, having the tools to uh, know what's changing, what's 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 reacting. For, let's let's be honest. For example, the last um, the last year or so, if if you could have predicted how much the cost of living crisis could, could affect your bills, that'd be fan- a fantastic simple tool to give to everybody. Yeah, that'd be that'd be a great kind of crystal ball to have in terms of right, my data. What does it mean for me? Okay, uh, this is how it means. I think that that's where we need to get to. Um, yeah, absolutely. So we've talked quite a lot about Gen Z. Just just um, Kind of just, just touch on millennials a bit more. So, how do you think the attitudes of millennials um, differ from Gen Zs? Um, what do you think their kind of attitude to finances is? They're in different situation, different life stage. Yeah, I think it's really interesting actually because I think Gen Z obviously are, are coming into adulthood at this time where we've got this cost of living crisis and the the economy is a bit wild. Whereas millennials, depending on which level of millennial you are. Uh, almost this this buffer in the in between generations. So we've kind of got the Gen X above us, who a lot of them actually had quite a good time when it came to the economy. They went into quite a flush jobs market, and they've a lot of them have benefited hugely from house price inflation. Um, as millennials, we're in this sandwich where I think a lot of a lot of us feel as though we we can relate a little bit to Gen Z and the struggles that they're having. You know, we're still quite early on, a lot of us in our careers. We're finding our feet. Some of those changes in terms of um, the financial landscape have really impacted us. But we do have a little bit more stability because we are a few more years into adulthood. Yeah. Um, so we may be don't have as much insecurity around jobs, for example, and, um, you know, the whole first in, first out, which tends to happen in a lot of companies when we see lots of redundancies happen, which is what's going on at the moment. So I think think it's a really interesting generation because I speak to a lot of millennials who feel relatively comfortable in some respects financially in the sense that they do have secure jobs or they are confident that they've got that skill set to to be able to change job if something happens, but they're still struggling. So they feel very stretched when it comes to housing, for example, and the property ladder is a whole nother minefield we could go into. But um, And even things around, you know, like we said, having families, I think is a real stress financially for millennials because there's just this combination of different factors economically, which have meant that millennials are quite squeezed and are at that life stage where they're thinking, okay, I'm in my 30s and and heading to my 40s. I want to be able to do these things, but the financial environment isn't allowing me to. So I think it's really tough actually for a lot of them. Yeah, I think um, what we've talked about is kind of educating the kind of Gen Zs, but this this probably millennial generation didn't have that education when they when they were in the same kind of age range. So they'll have probably walked through life 
bumbling through, doing the best they can with advice from here, there, and everywhere. Yeah. And, and I think, again, to give them tools now to understand what the reality of the situation is, is, is really important. I think yeah. they'll have different needs, different wants, different just different aspirations. But again, the same the same kind of methodology applies is give give the consumers the tools, give them the information to make sure they understand their personal situation, circumstances. I think in some respects, Gen Z are in a better position in so much as in 10 years time, they will have had a lot more access to data and education and information by the time that they kind of hit their 30s, mid 30s than millennials, because they, we didn't have all of that, like you say. And I think we're almost in a catch up for, for millennials where we're starting to get access to all of this data and information and insights and education about how to actually manage our money. But we're we're trying to do it at a stage of life, which is a bit more progressed and where we actually maybe already have a setup financially that we're having to navigate, which we maybe made decisions about without the full information, if that makes sense. Um, where we we maybe made decisions slightly in the dark, which we wouldn't have made if we had all the information. So um, I'm seeing a lot of that as well, where I'm speaking to a lot of millennials who maybe have, for example, overborrowed and are now really overstretched because of the cost of living and interest rates. So that education still can be so valuable um, to help them to navigate those situations. But I think for Gen Z, they actually are in a position, hopefully, to be able to avoid making those decisions in the first place. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if if I look at my own personal circumstances, I've I've worked at uh, TransUnion now for fifteen years, so I consider it as my first proper job yeah. <laughs> at university. Um, and I I wouldn't know half the things that I know around financial education, credit industry, etc., without working at this company. So it's kind of um, it's got a personal um, aim of mine is to kind of well, how do you make sure that everyone's in the, in the privileged position that I'm in, working in this kind of financial services industry? How do how can we make that accessible yeah. to or everybody? And so um, so yeah, no, absolutely support you. And I think I think the, the right thing to do is try and get more information education out there. But the key thing is to make it simple. How can you make it simple to understand? Because let's be honest, the terminology around uh, financial services is confusing. Um, So many acronyms. It's so many many acronym-centric. So how can we make it really simple? I'm not sure if you're aware of it. There's there's actually things going on in the industry at the moment. Um, The FCA, the the Financial Conduct Authority, have got um, some regulation around um, uh, consumer duty. Uh, going at the moment to try yeah. and make things simple so i think that'll change i think that'll really really help consumers to kind of cut through kind of the terminology and the, kind of the 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 challenging information so i think uh, there's, a, there's a massive role to play um as institutions but also the regulator is doing doing good great work in this area as well yeah absolutely i think it's it feels as though there's a bit of a shift uh, a change in approach and it's very much needed um to, to kind of meet the the times that we're in as well. You know, no one could have predicted it, um, that we would be in the situation that we're in economically. But I think the fact that people are responding, that the regulators are responding, that companies are responding. Um, and also, yeah, you know, people are time poor at the moment. People, especially younger generations, don't have attention spans like they used to have. So making everything simple, digestible is really, really going to be key. So. How do you think um, of 
technology is going to play a role in this. So things like ChatGPT, um, <laughs> obviously it's a massive, massive thing at the moment um, that, that everyone's utilizing, which is great, including myself, that's it, a million questions a day, um, just to try and test it out. But yeah. what do you think that's going to bring into the, kind of this, this, this financial services world? How is it going to influence kind of uh, the future? Yeah, I mean, it's a it's a scary one, I think. Um, it's scary, but also very full of potential. I think that there's a big question around, again, reliability. And I think that will come over time. But I think for, for financial services and for really personalized data, then there is a big question mark in my mind as to how do you bridge that gap? How does AI manage to to really take into account all of those people's circumstances? So, you know, if you're asking ChatGPT, like, what should I do with my money? It doesn't yet have the the data or the information yeah. to be able to give you a accurate response. But I think there is a very high chance that we will get to that point. And I think that if there's a way that it can be done that is reliable, um, and I don't know because I'm not very good with technology, but um, <laughs> I'm, I'm optimistic that there is, um, that it could actually really make personalized financial planning way more accessible because I think again there's a big barrier at the moment to in a lot of respects to to getting that very unique look at my situation tell me what to do kind of advice um at the moment there's there's still a barrier there's an advice gap and if technology can help to bridge that and to actually look at your personal financial data and to say okay no this is what I think you should do and you can feel confident in that. I think that's that would be amazing. Yeah, no, absolutely. I we always talk about um kind of the concierge effect where something tells you it has access to your information that you've obviously consented to, but it provides tailored advice, support. Yeah. Did you know X? Did you know why? Oh, you could do this, you could do that. And I think I think that's where technology's got the role to play. I think it can go too far at one point, yes. but I think it's it's kind of um the, the, the good thing around the UK market is the, the consent framework that's been built uh, enables the consumers to, to hold the, the keys and hold the power. So finally, what would be your kind of uh, your advice or your kind of takeaways for for anyone that's going to be listening to this podcast uh, and just for any consumers out there around financial education? Yeah, I think it's really start simple. You don't have to jump in into the deep end. And I think so often that's what puts people off is this idea that they have to learn absolutely everything and know absolutely every single answer. I think just finding a way that you can learn about money and about managing your finances that you enjoy. So whether it's a podcast, whether it's a book, whether it's, you know, social media channels that are reliable and educational finding something that you can really tap into and make that learning experience enjoyable will completely transform how you view money. And it really is a great time to be getting involved in financial education and learning about things because there is so much rich content out there. So I'd just say, give it a go. You know, don't don't think that it has to be boring because it's about finances. Um, it really doesn't. And the benefits that you'll get from engaging in financial education and, and learning are so huge that you won't look back. Well, thank you very much for, for all your time, all your information today. And this podcast will be available on our TransUnion Business Insights or your preferred podcast provider. Thanks so much for having me. It's been great to chat. And yeah, if anyone wants to find out more information, then feel free to check out Money and Filtered podcast on Apple, Spotify, wherever you listen.
Thanks very much, Ellie. This podcast was produced by TransUnion, a global insights and analytics company. The views expressed in this podcast are not necessarily those of TransUnion, and TransUnion is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice or recommendations in this podcast. Thank you.